Acts chapter 8. We're in a series of sermons that's titled, Miracle, the Power of God's Salvation. We hold that salvation belongs to the Lord, and He brings salvation about for believers. Therefore, the power of God's salvation is indeed a miracle. The story of the early church is remarkable. As history goes, it borders on unbelievable. It is that remarkable. Jesus invests in 12 men. He will lose one of them, right, Judas. He dies a horrific death on a cross after ministering for only three-plus years, and three days later is raised from the dead. That was spectacular news that a dead person had been raised to life, and there was no other instrument as with Lazarus. So news traveled far and wide. Jesus meets up with the apostles and gives them further instructions. He orders them not to depart from Jerusalem. That's Acts 1. They're to wait for the promise of the Father. They'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells them they'll receive power and be witnesses about Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the end of the earth. That's Acts 2. Acts is the account of the spread of the gospel into all the world. We notice in Acts 2, some 3,000 souls were added to the church in Jerusalem. Then in Acts 4, we saw the 5,000 men came to saving faith. It was a thrilling time to be alive because numerous miracles accompanied the preaching of God's Word, but it was a sobering time to be alive because persecution begins to happen. This is because the world, Jesus told us, hates the light and they love darkness. So as we go through Acts, first it was Peter and John being persecuted, then Stephen, and now the persecution will spread to all of the church. Looking ahead to Acts 10, the gospel will move beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. So this spread of the gospel, this story of the expansion of the gospel from the 12 to the 120 in the upper room outwards to all the world is invigorating, and happily, we can say the gospel made its way all the way from there to us, and we're very glad to have heard the gospel because we know there are people in the world who have never heard the good news. So it's inspiring history. But we shouldn't look at this piece of history and think it's meaningless to us today. It should bring us inspiration regarding the power of God to save. John Stott said this in his commentary. Acts is also important, however, for the contemporary inspiration which it brings us. That it should do. It should inspire us. Calvin called it a kind of vast treasure... Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to it as that most lyrical of books and added, live in that book, I exhort you. It's a tonic, the greatest tonic I know of in the realm of the Spirit. In fact, it's been a salutary exercise for the Christian church of every century to compare itself with the church of the first and to seek to recapture something of its confidence, enthusiasm, vision, 
and power. Christians who love Jesus love to see the gospel proclaimed to all of humanity in all of the earth, both near and far. Remember Revelation in our study of that final book of the Bible helped us long for the end, but there is work to be done. And here are two scriptures that give a summary of that work. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In Colossians 1, 28, him we proclaim, that is Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, here in Acts 8, we'll see this work underway. The gospel will advance out of Jerusalem to Samaria and then to Ethiopia, which is, of course, in Africa. God is at work, and he uses means to accomplish his purpose, but it is the work of God. And that purpose continues today through us and other believers So this sermon is titled, The Expansion of the Gospel. I have three points in Acts 8, verses 1 through 4. The gospel expands despite persecution. Verses 5 to 25, the gospel expands in Samaria. And 26 to 40, the gospel expands into Ethiopia. So, point one, persecution expands despite persecution. Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Acts 7, which we didn't look at, recounts the sermon Stephen preaches regarding the history of Israel and his subsequent martyrdom. Stephen boldly confronts the religious leaders of that day, and they are enraged. Stephen claims to see the heavens open. He sees the glory of God and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and for that, They stone Stephen. But before Stephen dies, he demonstrates the true heart of a Christian. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. A faithful Christian lives with this heart of forgiveness toward others. And it's a glorious thing. We live out of that place. Excuse me, I'm going to cough. So I said there was a super spreader event, and uh, it appears I got something. So they have a heart of forgiveness, and Saul, later Paul, is present, and he's watching the garments that the men take off, and he totally approves of the execution of Stephen. So a great persecution breaks out against the church. Many believers flee, and they're scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, I always enjoy personally thinking about these situations and wondering what I would do if I was in them. How would I act, think? How would I react? What would I do? We notice the apostles stayed. I've read books, heard sermons where they are criticized for staying. 
because they were told to go into all the earth, so they are uh, accused of some sort of uh, cowardice or some sort of uh, unfaithfulness. But Luke does not criticize them, and I would suggest it took great courage to stay when persecution breaks out. So I don't think these were cowardly individuals. The church needed a home base, and they stayed to provide that. But Saul ends up ravaging the church. He drags men and women off into prison. This is no doubt. This explains why Paul uses such strong language to describe himself. And we do well to think along. Some of us have sins in our past that we think are horrific, and, and we wonder if God can forgive us for what we've done. Well, Saul, now Paul, writes this in 1 Timothy 1, 12 and following. I thank Him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. For the Apostle Paul, what a Savior. Paul was astonished that he had received the grace of God instead of the judgment that he deserved. Grace simply overflowed. Saul was not searching for Jesus, wasn't looking for a Savior. He's knocked off his horse. He's blinded and converted God essentially looks down on Saul and says, I'll take that one. And one doesn't see very much free will being exercised by Saul as he's knocked off the horse. He's claimed by God, and he writes in the Scriptures that his salvation was meant to be a testimony and an example to all of us. And that's why we say regeneration is always a miracle whether it's a child raised in a family or an individual who was sinning heartily, running the other way, regeneration is always a miracle when it happens. When we consider persecution, if you're like me, you might wonder if you have what it takes to endure that event taking place. In colonial America, People actually gave constant thought to persecution. They were actually prepared for it. Uh, again, we, we don't tend to think about it a great deal. We, we tend to want to look the other way. And again, at least I'm speaking for myself. But these folks in early America um, prepared for it because they, uh, books were scarce. They didn't have many books. And the first book that someone in colonial America would go for is the Bible. But the second book they would go for, and I just recently learned this, I would have thought it was Pilgrim's Progress. But it wasn't. That was probably third. The second book they went for was Fox's Book of Martyrs. And there they would read account after account 
of early persecutions in the church. And there, they would read about the early 200s when Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, and Perpetua were put to death for their faith. Here's the account of Perpetua. She's a married lady, about 22 years old. On the day appointed for their execution, there are five people total, they were led to the amphitheater. Three men were ordered to run the gauntlet between the hunters or such as had the care of the wild beasts. The hunters being drawn up in two ranks, they ran between and were severely lashed as they passed. Felicitas, who was the slave of Perpetua, and Perpetua were stripped in order to be thrown to a mad bull which made its first attack upon Perpetua and stunned her. He then darted at Felicitas and gored her dreadfully, but not killing them, the executioner did that office with a sword. These executions were in 2005 on the eighth day in March. I read something like that and wonder, would I have grace? Would I be able to endure But here we have a 22-year-old married lady and her slave going through horrific events for their faith. Uh, Beth and I, when we lived back in Pennsylvania, enjoyed yearly pilgrimages to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, because we loved history and we loved the colonial period. And so there, uh, we would often uh, hook up with the individual who was a pastor. He was a slave. He pastored the first Baptist church in Williamsburg, and his name was Gowan Pamphlet. Uh, Gowan and I became friends. Uh, He recognized me in subsequent visits. I didn't know if that was a good thing or not, but we appeared to enjoy talking. But from Gowan, I learned that Baptist preachers would come to Williamsburg, and they walked down the Duke of Gloucester Street preaching the gospel, knowing full well that they were going to get beaten and thrown in jail. They knew it was coming because it was Anglican turf and it was state church and all that, and and they they weren't welcome there. You couldn't have a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church. That That was out. There was no religious liberty. These dudes would show up knowing they're going to get beaten and in prison, and they walk down the street preaching the gospel. And I think, Lord... Do I have what it takes to do that? I don't know. I mean, that is so, it's so strong. Uh, It's so compelling. And these men simply rejoiced that they could share in the sufferings of their Savior. Their eyes were always fixed on Jesus as they ministered. It goes for the first century church as well. Their eyes were on Jesus far more than on their circumstances. So Jesus tells his church to expect to be mistreated by the world. This will include men and women of whom the world is not worthy. We can expect to be mistreated. But God promises to be with us. The gospel is going to move forward. And actually, the more persecution it comes, the more the gospel will spread. God is promised to be with us in our moment of need, yet it seems overwhelming. So G. Morgan Campbell, who's the individual that preceded Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster in London, wrote this in his commentary, the study of the Acts of the Apostles will have a twofold effect on us. It will fill us with hope, 
it will fill us with shame. Because we look at what these individuals went through and we think, I want to be like that. But the shame piece comes around with, I wonder if there's grace in me to do it. I know God promises, I want to be faithful, but what's it like in that moment? Christians are compelled by love, and we accept what God has for us, and we know that the contract we signed when we signed on to follow King Jesus is a blank document. There's nothing there. He can do with us whatever He wills, because we belong to Him. He holds our days in His hand. We won't die one minute before He wants us to die, and we won't live one minute longer than He wants us to live. He holds us in His hands. So as Christians flee Jerusalem, they preach the Word. doesn't mean they had a church service. Preaching the Word means they shared the good news. What did they share? The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins that leads to fullness of life now and eternal life in the age to come. So while persecution seems awful and tragic, the plans of God run straight through it because God is sovereign. So we need not fear it. He will be with us. Point two, the gospel expands in Samaria, verses 5 to 25. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who'd previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of money, the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Lord, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. What a story that is. 
God is at work, and Philip is the means of grace that God uses. Philip is one of seven men selected in Acts 6 to wait on tables. He's described as being of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. So Philip preaches Christ in Samaria, as we know from the account in John 4, if you recall back a few weeks, with the woman at the well, Jews and Samaritans do not mix, and this has been the reality for centuries, upwards of a thousand years. Therefore, this breaking in of the gospel is a most remarkable development. John Stott says the Samaritans were despised by the Jews as hybrids in both race and religion, as both heretics and schismatics. John summed up the situation in his simple statement that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Philip goes, he evangelizes the city, he performs signs, unclean spirits come out, paralyzed and lame are healed, and the result is much joy because the kingdom of God is breaking into Samaria. Uh, Signs and wonders often abound when the gospel goes into new unreached areas. Uh, My friend Paul Michaels does work in Nepal, and he has remarkable testimonies of demons being cast out and of sicknesses being healed. His evangelistic teams that go out actually go into villages, and they will ask, where are the sick? Uh, Bring them to us, and we will pray. And they show a demonstration of God's power, and then... Um, they preach the gospel. Uh, But signs and wonders, while demonstrating the power of the kingdom, do not always lead to regeneration, does not always lead to a heart being changed for the glory of God. So among those professing faith uh, in Samaria, one of them is Simon Magus. He's an interesting fellow. He practiced magic, proclaimed himself great, And people were amazed at his magic. He was a powerful individual. He was famous, and they all paid attention to him. Philip preaches. The crowd believes the message. They are baptized. It says Simon himself believes and is baptized. So Simon sees the signs and wonders done by Philip, and he's amazed, and he wants to do the same. He's no longer the greatest or most amazing person in town. Philip has replaced him in that role, so Simon wants to know how to do it. Well, the apostles are back in Jerusalem, some 35 miles away. They hear what's taking place with Philip in Samaria, and they send Peter and John. I would wonder what John was thinking, because in Luke 9, 51 to 56, James and John want to call down fire on a Samaritan village uh, that rejected Jesus. So there's no love lost as, as John is going to Samaria. I'd love to know what he was thinking. How do you do ministry when you have that division? Well, there was obviously a change of heart, and Peter and John are now beginning to understand that the gospel is for all nations. They're beginning to understand that it isn't just for the Jews. So verse 17 They lay hands on the Samaritans, and they receive the Holy Spirit. This is important because it shows that the Samaritans, who'd been rejected for a thousand years, are at the same place as the church back in Jerusalem. There is no difference between them. Now, let's look back at Philip. Uh, What a godly minister. What a team player. Notice there's no rivalry. There's no division. There's no 
I'm the man here. I'm on point. I've got a revival going. I don't need your help. He gladly receives Peter and John as they come. And uh, Philip is fine with coming under their leadership. Now, we can't look at this account and say, be Philip. That's not the point of the passage. And God used Philip in a unique way. That's not the point at all. But here is what we can say and do. We can share the good news about Jesus Christ where we are. And we can come under the authority of leaders. It's not, I'm doing my own thing, going my own way. I'm solo and independent. But we all do well to come under leaders. And Philip models this in an exemplary way. We can, like Philip, avoid limiting God. There is a danger and there is a tendency, I say, in our hearts to limit what God can do through us. Philip did not limit what God could do through him. And I underscore again, it's the work of God working through Philip. He couldn't go do this just whenever he wanted. It was the power of God working in that moment. So, when you're asked to serve in a church, lean in. In fact, look for ways to serve. There is nothing beneath us. My very first ministry assignment in the church plant I was a part of was setting up chairs, and I sought to do the best job possible. Uh, other assignments for me came later, leading a small group. They actually had me leading worship, though I can't sing. They wouldn't let me sing into the mic. They made me hold it down here. I was allowed to talk, but, but I couldn't sing into the mic. And I was at the ministry mic, was a meeting administrator, uh, sought to do whatever, whatever I could do. And then years later, through the call of God, actually become a pastor. But I say again, in starting out, there's nothing too small. And I certainly wasn't doing it to try to get somewhere. I was doing it simply to be faithful in the moment. So friends, don't limit God. And don't be afraid to start small. That totally describes Philip. He starts off waiting on tables, ends up being used in, in revival. Let's not limit God in the ways he chooses to use us. I don't know what it will be, but let's not limit God. Let's be available. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Always good to remember, God's thoughts are far higher than our thoughts. We, we, we work on different planes, as it were. That's how it goes. Verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So the Spirit is received in Samaria. Simon wants in on this. He offers money to Peter and John because that's the currency magicians use. And Peter rebukes Simon. Peter, with apostolic authority, commands Simon to repent of the wickedness in his heart, for the kingdom does not come by money. This event was so well known uh, that it is actually an English word, simony, for money being used to purchase uh, things in the church, uh, positions mostly. Uh, became a very common word through a couple of centuries back. 
The point is the gift is free to us. We don't pay for it. Simon, this is an interesting response. Simon responds by asking for prayer. But prayer was not actually the need of the moment. The need of the moment was repentance. Prayer was not repentance. Repentance was a matter of changing his thinking and his heart and aligning it with the will of God. Now, sadly, Simon does not repent. So we don't know the outcome of his life. There are some historical records that would cast repentance into doubt. But we are all commanded to repent. So if you're not yet a believer in Christ, whatever your age, the command is repent, believe, and be baptized. We're called to trust and obey Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We're all invited to this banquet Jesus offers us. Many are called to it. The gift is free. Only lay down your pride. Only lay down that you have anything to offer to God, for you do not. All we bring to salvation is our sins. Jesus invites the thirsty, the hungry, the lowly, the weak, and the foolish. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. This is, this is us. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The cross is our only boast. We have nothing to say of ourselves. We do not commend ourselves. We only boast in the cross. Notice there's not many that come to faith, not many powerful, not many wise, not many strong. This is one reason why we're very wise to be slow to believe famous conversions when they take place. We're wise to be slow because Simon, after all, did profess faith and was baptized, but he is rebuked for his sin, and we notice that we all must persevere and endure to the end. And so, don't know what happened to Simon, but we know he was commanded to repent. Truth was presented to him clearly, and he had every opportunity to do so. Jesus said Peter was the rock on which a church would be built, and so it was. Peter, in these early chapters in Acts, preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem, goes to Samaria, and he will go to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. God uses means for the spread of the gospel. He uses apostles. He uses Christians who are persecuted. He uses Philip, and he aims to use us. Now, this text has been used by some to advocate for a certain position regarding the Holy Spirit called a second experience. It's what I was taught in the early days of faith. Uh, they believe the text sets up a second experience practice. We, however, don't hold to that. Uh, the Spirit was withheld so that the church would be one. There would be one body, not a Jewish church, not a Samaritan church or a Gentile church. One church 
one body, one Lord. We believe in that sense in the Catholic Church, lowercase c. It is one, one Lord, one body, one church. John Stott summarizes our position well. Initiation into Christ, according to the New Testament, is a single-stage experience in which we repent, believe, and are baptized, and receive both the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, after which, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we grow into Christian maturity. That said, the Spirit does move in might and power and in unusual ways. There are many fillings in the Christian life. There are subsequent experiences of the Spirit where God moves in might and power and lives are impacted and changed for the glory of God. Many fillings, but only one initial experience into the body of Christ. So the gospel continues to go into all the world. God the missionaries at work to save his bride. He'll use Philip as well as other saints. Next up is Africa. Third point, the gospel expands into Ethiopia, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. In verse 26, Philip is given his assignment. Notice, Philip is sent out into the middle of the desert, right? This does not seem strategic at all. One might call this into question, but God is at work, and his ways are not our ways. Philip had just ministered to crowds, signs and wonders. He'd just been used in one way by God. Now he's going to be used by God in a different way. Verse 27, he rose and went. Obedience is a, is a glorious thing. Uh, I've personally in my life had a few moments when I believe the Lord spoke to me in a clear and compelling way such that to disobey would have been disobedience, even though it's not 
the Word of God. I was, around the year 1980, called to be a shepherd. There was a prophetic word given at a meeting I was in, and the Lord spoke to me and said, you're one of them. I didn't think it meant full-time. Like, it didn't put me on any trajectory. I just knew that what Beth and I were to do in the church was to seek to care for people, to heal up wounds, and to help people grow in the Lord. Then, one day, I received strong impression that I would be the next senior pastor at Living Hope, this despite the fact I didn't want that role, and I was somewhat concerned I might fail in that role. Nevertheless, I knew the impression. And so I shared it with the leaders, uh, the senior pastor and the extra-local leader, and I said, this might not ever happen. This might be 10 years off, like, but I did have this strong sense from the Lord, and they didn't comment much on it, uh, but I knew the Lord had, had spoken. And then there was the matter of raising money for land in a building at Living Hope. Uh, I was actually anti-building. Uh, I thought it was a lot of money and too much fuss, and, and we, didn't, we didn't need it, but had this sense from the Lord that, that we were to do it. So uh, we went forward with that, and now to look back, it's remarkable, but Living Hope, um, in going into the building, grew up to about 400 or so folks, 450 attendants, that sort of thing. They just planted a church uh, on the west shore of Harrisburg. Uh, geographically, there's a river that divides, so they call it East Shore and West Shore, and um, that church plant is off to a strong start, but if we had simply chosen to do my preference and stay meeting in a school all of our days, the church would not have grown as it did, and that church plant wouldn't be happening. So we don't always know what the Lord is up to when He has us do something. Philip is sent out into the desert. After just having ministered to crowds, being more famous than Simon, out into the desert with you, Philip. You know, the God, God is not afraid to waste 40 years of someone's life to prepare them for what's ahead. He's not afraid to do that because the Lord is patient. He's kind. He's not, he's, we're in a hurry. We want to get there fast. We want it now. God's just rolling and reigning over everything not even breaking a sweat, just ruling and reigning, not sleeping a moment, just ruling and reigning, bringing His purposes about, which we get to participate in. So the Ethiopian, no name even given, a trusted court official, a Queen Candace, is returning home from Jerusalem. He's a worshiper, but not yet a Christian. This is called a God-fearer. Philip's instructed to go over to the chariot the Ethiopians reading Isaiah 53 aloud, I've never had this happen in my evangelistic efforts, but it seems like a strong leg up that someone would be reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't understand what he's reading, but he wants instruction. So in verse 35, Philip opens his mouth, uses scriptures to proclaim Jesus Christ, to which I want to say, we can loosen the lion that is the Word of God. The Word of God 
is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God moves. The Word of God is powerful. And let us not be afraid of sharing scriptures with folks that we're seeking to witness to. If you're like me, sometimes you can think, I need to be aware of all the clever arguments there are to try to convince this person to believe. But that's not really our position. It's not really what we're to do. We can share the Word of God with them and let the Word of God do its powerful work in them. So the Ethiopian's all in. He sees water. He's baptized. And we know from history, the Ethiopian takes the gospel back home and the gospel continues to expand into all the world. So Philip, it says, is carried away. Uh, some consider this a miracle. Some say it isn't. I have no clue. He's carried away is what I know. And he continues to preach as he goes. And eventually Philip is in Caesarea where he seems to spend the rest of his life. Acts 21, 8 and 9 describes his life. He's a godly man. And he did not always seek out crowds. So when Paul is returning to Jerusalem in his journey, he meets up with Philip. Acts 21, 8 and 9 when the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So Philip the evangelist, it's the only person in the Bible who receives that title. No one else is given that label. But the Spirit of the Lord was on Philip. Wherever Philip was ministering, good things seemed to happen. Godly, obedient man, and God used Philip in his purposes so the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Samaria to Ethiopia. God is at work. Philip is at work. And the gospel expands into all the world. Philip was simply available for God to use. While Philip preaches to the poor in Samaria, it's mass evangelism. He preaches to a wealthy official, personal evangelism. Philip simply proclaims Jesus Christ wherever he is. So let me close. Let us be available to serve as an ambassador for Jesus. Let us determine that we are available to be used by God because we belong to Him. Who knows how God may be pleased to use us in His mission of seeking out and saving sinners. All I know is, let's not limit God, but put the brakes on ourselves. Let's look to Him. The gospel has changed us. The love of God has filled our hearts. We care about these things. To be a Christian means belonging to Christ. So like Isaiah, we are available. Isaiah 6, 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. We say, Lord, here we are. Use us as you will. Send us. Keep us here. Whatever it is that we are called to, may we be obedient but like Isaiah, were available. So the gospel needs to be proclaimed. How will they know unless they hear? John Stott, one final time, says, this is a salutary reminder 
that there can be no gospel without an evangel, and that Christian evangelism presupposes the good news of Jesus Christ. Effective evangelism becomes possible only when the church recovers both the biblical gospel and a joyful confidence in its truth, relevance, and power. A joyful confidence in its truth, its relevance, and its power. Oh, to be used by the Lord in whatever He has for us. Most of life is very ordinary. Very, very ordinary, very average. That is most of life. But let us offer God our desires and our availability. Let us offer ourselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice to do with as He will. Two quotes in light of what Christ has done for us. C.T. Studd, famous cricket player, a couple centuries back. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And William Carey said, expect great things, attempt great things. So we're living an ordinary life. But as we live our ordinary life and have many ordinary moments, let's be open to the Lord using us. Let's ask Him to use us, to pour us out as an offering to Him, to be willing to spend and be spent on His behalf. The one who died for our sins was raised from the dead and called us to follow Him. Let us make ourselves available to Him. This Thanksgiving, no doubt many of us will gather with our families. We're not one of them, but many of us will. And I want to encourage you to remember Abelardo's sermon about the little girl who bravely persisted in telling Naaman about the prophet. And I want to encourage us to, even if we've done it poorly in the past, and even if we've uh, become convinced we can't do it, I want to encourage us to consider allowing God to use us in sharing the gospel once again. No clever arguments. We're not forcing it down anyone's throat. We're simply appealing that they consider the God of mercy who sent Jesus to a cross to die for our sins to receive the gift of eternal life. No arguments, no divisiveness, only love and mercy pouring out of our hearts to those we love and care about. I'm sure you'll do well. Let's pray. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up if they would. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you. I pray that we would truly believe we've signed a blank contract and we're yours. So we do ask that you would use us as you will. Lord, we offer our lives as a living sacrifice to you. And Lord, I pray that we would believe the biblical gospel. Pray that we would have a joyful confidence in the gospel's truth and relevance and power. 
Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would lead and guide us in living this life. Lord, we love you. And we're so grateful for what we received in Christ. We pray that we would do our small part somehow, some way, whatever that is. If it's only a doorkeeper, Lord, we're ready to be a doorkeeper. Whatever you have for us, Lord, we pray that you would use us in the spread of the gospel for the glory of God. Amen.